Welcome to Digibarn Radio, fascinating stories from the history of computing. I'm Tommy Cuellar. And now to our special feature, Apple at 30, 1976, Apple in the Garage, a special event produced and hosted by Digibarn curator Bruce Damer. This event was recorded live in three parts at the Vintage Computer Festival, which was held at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California, on November 4th, 2006. The first part is Bruce's introduction to the event. The second part is the panel discussion, which includes Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, joined by early employees Daniel Kotke, Randy Wigginton, and Chris Espinoza. Also in attendance were other early pioneers of the personal computer industry, including John Draper, a.k.a. Captain Crunch, Key Macintosh team member Andy Hertzfeld, and many others. And now for part two of three. The Apple at 30 panel tells the story of Apple in the garage and much more. These gentlemen in between the two Apple ones. So if anything's wrong, anything they say is technically incorrect, look at Zap for either side. All right, I think that that's... Surprise guest. Are they years and they still have me setting up chairs. <laughs> 30 years and still setting up chairs. And what we'll do, of course, is to get good sound uh, for you and for the recordings we're doing, we'll ask you to have the talking stick and pass it around. Who wants to start? We've got this, the pipe. I'll start. Um, it's, yeah, it's so great to be here with this group because <coughs> I always think about how all this excitement that we had going in the Homebrew Computer Club and the early days and talking about how we were going to revolutionize society with technology and all I was good at was being a good technologist and a very shy one. But when you have excited people around, I don't like to like think about, well, I'm going to design something for all these millions of people in the world or write a book. I like to think about the people that I'm like hands-on touching, talking with every day. And you know, you roll off an idea. What if a computer was like this? I get an idea, I want to show it off. It's really to the close people. And uh, Chris and Randy were so young back in those days. And Daniel was very young, came along just a little later after the, uh, we got started with the Apple One. And it was just those sort of people that you talk off and you feel your ideas have some value and merit in the world. There's other people saying, wow, what a great product. This is really going to you know, help change the world. So it's good to be here with this group. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm still and I'm still very shy in uh, like in most social situations. Um, yeah, it is great to uh, be here. I mean, definitely uh, starting Apple was one of the best things ever. Uh, I look back on it, and it's just so many uh, uh, great memories. And uh, uh, Waz and I had so much fun. Um, Bob's big boy, the um, chair, and uh, floppy disk. Yep. Going out all night long, uh, working and gambling and alternating shifts. That was fun. And uh, it's just uh, been one of the pleasures of my life to uh, be associated with uh, Apple and Steve and Chris and Daniel and everybody else. And although Steve and I were in our young 20s, Randy was still in high school when we met him. Chris was very young in high school. But these guys were like so young that their minds were open and they spotted, whoa, this sort of thing that's Waz is doing, you know, just a certain number of chips that you can actually count on a board is a whole computer right to a programming language. It was just so inspiring that the young people would see it and get interested. They had that energy that kind of pushes you, you know, wow, let's try this, why don't we do this, why don't we, you know, a lot of that movement there. Um, so it's kind of nice to be with them. And Chris, God, I remember the, the night you stayed at Apple writing some 
software demos, and we've gotten a lot of trouble. I never even thought about it myself. Yeah, um, thanks, Waz. Uh, it was really interesting being um, 14, 15 years old and having as my hobby um, hanging out with guys who would turn out to have been the founders of a major technical revolution and an, an entire industry that transformed certainly our way of life around here and not just around uh, or and around the world. Uh, but coming home at 6 in the morning uh, after staying out all night and getting uh, put on suspension by your parents uh, is, you know, a common experience for a lot of kids, but um, very few did it uh, writing uh, graphic output subroutines with laws. <laughs> and then that was, I think, the only suspension I got when I was in high school. But uh, it was, I really didn't know, and I don't think uh, uh, Randy did either, that this wasn't the way that 14-year-olds you know, did things when they were in high school. You got a hobby, you found some friends, they started a small business. I mean, I was in junior achievement. That's what they were telling you was going to happen. You start a small company and it grows. Well, I've been there 30 years now. Um, uh, the reason I'm there is that in 1981, I'd gone off to college uh, to get a uh, degree in English literature because everybody told me that I wouldn't get a good job unless I had a, a college degree. I, I saw Waz and Jobs and they were both dropouts and I didn't want to end up like them. <laughs> and so Jobs called me up one day and said, I want you to come be the publications manager for Macintosh. Listening carefully, it will only take a year. <laughs> and I'll pay your tuition to finish college when we're done. Um, I'm still waiting. <laughs> uh, it was nice to see also um, uh, Liza's uh, um, demonstration of well, the first Apple One um, that was up on the projector, and I remember that so deeply. It was a way that um, I felt like she was doing stuff, taking around, rolling around a PP11 or something to schools, and showing fourth graders how computer software is a set of steps written by humans. And I thought, wow, how great that I can contribute to technology and to young kids' education. So I actually donated the first Apple One to her. And then Steve Jobs came, he made me pay 300 bucks for it. That was my partner. <laughs> so it wasn't that easy. But, um, um, you know, it was great because uh, uh, we went out to the PC76 show. We had a picture up there of Steve Jobs with Daniel Pocky, who all passed the mic to. And I was actually in a room in the hotel, working away, trying to finish up basics so I could be like uh, Bill Gates. <laughs> well, it's a... Uh... Pretty surrealistic to be here 30 years later. Um, you know, uh, my history was I went, grew up in Pelham, New York, in a high school that had no electronics, wasn't even a radio shack in town. I remember trying to build a walkie-talkie kit in high school and just had, did not know anyone else who was interested at all. And so my interest in electronics just completely faded. And uh, I became a friend with of Steve Jobs at college, read over Eastern literature. And Steve never talked about the Blue Box activities that he was doing with the laws. Never talked about it at all, which surprised me later, because I would have been interested. And he never talked about electronics at all. Uh, and so then, uh, summer of 76, I came out to visit, not for any particular reason, but Steve was already doing the Apple one. So uh, I can clearly remember my first day arrived at the Jobs' house. Uh, Steve's younger sister, Patty, was in the living room 
watching television. She was watching the Gong Show, in fact, bugging the chips into the Apple One on the coffee table. So actually, it was the coffee table stage in the living room. Uh, and I thought, well, God, I could do that. And uh, so then I took over that job right away. <laughs> I wasn't really into the Gong Show, but I was really interested in electronics. Didn't, did not have a clue how that stuff worked. So I spent a good deal of that summer uh, reading Interface Age magazine and reading the 6502 instruction manual, which I could not make any sense out of. But uh, I tried. Well, Dan was sitting on a subject too, which is the garage. Well, the garage was uh, uh, nowhere from Hewlett and Packard starting their garage. They had no company there. But really, we didn't have a telephone in the garage. Steve ran the business from his bedroom, you know, and from the other parts of the house, calling distributors, calling magazines, calling parts suppliers, and all the engineering that was done in my cubicle at HP or my apartment. And the garage, though, was so close to our hearts because it was the place that we brought people. We had one lap bench set up, and we could plug the computers together and do a final test before we drove them down to the store to get paid cash. But we'd bring people in and give the demos and talk there. And it was like sort of like the, a nice, warm place to meet people because it had a little bit of space and the rest of the house was always kind of crowded. Um, let's see. Uh, I first started working in the garage in um, December of 76. Uh, I met Waz and Jobs at the Homebrew Computer Club. Uh, our mutual teachers at Homestead High School, uh, Steve Headley on the uh, computer side, and uh, John McCullough on the electronic side, who um, always spoke very highly of you, was, and not so much of Steve. They warned me to, to keep my distance from the both of you, but thought it would be okay if I learned a little from you because you had actually gotten jobs, which was good. Um, and so after. Um, learning to program the Apple One at uh, the bike shop in Palo Alto, where they, they paid me handsomely in uh, two-month-old magazines for writing demo programs for them. Uh, I ran into Jobs one day there, and he said, would you like to come test the ROM software in the Apple II before we ship it? And so I spent my um, my December break uh, my, of uh, my sophomore year in high school sitting in the garage, which didn't have heat, that I recall. Uh, testing uh, integer basic before you burn it into the Apple II ROM, and that was when I started first working in the garage. Yes, I do remember those posts then. Um, also, a lot of present like, oh, Mossack designed the Apple I computer, and actually that's sort of a phony concept because um, even without seeing Pop Electronics, not knowing anything about an Altair computer on the cover of Pop Electronics, not knowing anything about a TVT designed by anyone else. I had visited John Draper Kent Crunch in the garage once, and he's typing on a teletype saying, I'm talking to a machine in Boston. And I could switch to other computers in Berkeley and Stanford, and it was the ARPANET, forerunner of the internet. And I just looked at it and said, I've got to have that. And the only way to have things was to build them out of parts virtually for free in my own design and use my home TV, so I built a little terminal first. And in those days, I optimized everything so tightly um, that the fastest modems that you could get would go 300 baud, that's 30 characters a second. 
So I tried to optimize my terminal. I designed it to do 60 characters a second, more than any terminal could do, more than any modem in the day could do, more than any teletype could do. So it was plenty fast, but by doing that, I was able to have little cheaper parts. And to me, everything in design was fewer parts or cheaper parts, with cheaper winning. And the cheapest parts were some little serial dynamic RAMs to hold the memory that was on your screen, the characters that were on your screen. So I had this terminal already. Then the idea came, why don't I put it together instead of calling a computer in Boston, call a little microprocessor and some RAM right here, a little program I write, and then and then I'll have a computer. So it was a, a little humble together out of a video terminal designed for one characteristics to build the computer. So you look at this computer and say, well, all it does is kind of print characters sort of slowly, only 60 a second. You know, um, it's not that impressive, but it wasn't really designed from the ground up to be a computer that had an intelligence, a processor, and a video. So uh, that's one of the reasons the Apple One is was kind of hobbled together. The Apple Two was really the first computer designed from the ground up, but it wasn't even designed to be a computer. Just started designing it as a color TV generator and then used the signals to drive the computer. Okay. You want to uh, talk about Paul Computer, Randy? Oh, okay. is the other thing you did today? Uh, the Apple Two actually was called and was as long, right? That's one of the first things you ever come. Do it right the second time. <laughs> <laughs> no, you said do it right. Would you teach me around? Um, Paul Computer is actually uh, was a uh, time sharing outfit that was uh, just a couple just a couple blocks from here actually on Old Middlefield Road, yeah. and uh, they contracted you to uh, design a terminal. Wasn't that uh, like? Uh, actually, I had to build the terminal on my own to do the ARPANET stuff, and then Steve Jobs came by and said, "Let's sell it." Right. He said, "He called and said, let's sell the blue boxes.'" And the terminals said, "Let's sell the terminals." And then we came to the Apple and said, "Let's sell the computer." There you go. And uh, yeah, you can get into the Homebrew Computer Club. Your your call computer. You wrote the assembler. Yes, I wrote the uh, original assembler for um, the Apple II, and uh, I mean it was all running on uh, uh, time sharing computers back then, because nobody could afford a computer of our own. Right? We all had to share a computer. Remember that? I mean, that, that was, to me, that's amazing. That uh, back then, having your own computer was just virtually unheard of. So that's why I started going to the Homebrew Computer Club. And you were the first one that uh, really made computers that people could get other than the Altair. <laughs> and some people hung around me at the Homer Computer Club saying, whoa, I can count the chips on this board. They're all cheap chips. How does he do it? But, you know, still, it was, a, it was sort of a subset because everybody was into the existing Altair, the, the uh, Intel chip computers of the day. Um, you know, we tried to be a, a little bit different. And really, it was, uh, it was almost accidental. I'd already built my own, five years before, I built my own machine with eight little switches for binary data and buttons to load up address registers and memory. And that's what the Altair was. It had 256 bytes of memory when you bought it stock, and that's what I heard. Well, after five years, you kind of want to move on to something else. And really, working with Hewlett Packard was the biggest influence to try to make a computer more human, like with a keyboard that looks normal, looks like something people could understand. It doesn't frighten the novitiate uh, away. And I look back, I didn't even think about it at the time, that it was all that important. It was just the cheaper, better way to do something was to build this thing with a little program that said, what are you typing on a keyboard? You could type in some commands that said, stuff this into memory, and it would happen. You didn't have to toggle switches and push buttons and move it over. It's really because it was cheaper. And um, you know, I look back, and every computer before the Apple One had a front panel. Every computer since has had a keyboard. So it was a big, um, a big important step. Yeah. Uh a lot of us uh, actually had experience outside of the Apple One and the Apple Two uh, before I met Waz and Jobs and started working exclusively on the Apple One and Apple Two. Um, my best friend had a Cosmac. I used the Kim One. I almost took a job working uh, for the people at Kim down on um, 
down in San Jose, but uh, Scott, Scott Boulevard in Santa Clara was too far to commute for me uh, because I only had a bicycle. And so after was a much better job opportunity because it was a half a mile away instead of uh, five miles on the bike. Um, when uh, my computer class in Steve Headley's class finally got a budget to uh, invest in microcomputers, uh, I wanted, I got a lot of um, processor technology RAM cards and an S100 backplane and a Promemco color dazzler because they would pop for all of us because all of the peripherals and the infrastructure and the, the ecosystem was all around the S100 bus. But I didn't know Intel machine code. Still don't even know we should be in televisions now. Um, okay, I, I toggled in the color desert and strap on an altar at least once. Uh, but and ran and uh, I, I also toggled the the. Uh, I punched. I, I have to admit it. I punched duplicate copies of all fair basic. Bill Gates still hates me. But I found this company that was building 6502 board CPU boards for the S100 bus. And so I built this thing for high school, spent thousands of dollars of the high school's money on a 6502-based um, S100 bus machine with a um, punch tape, punch and reader, and uh, uh, processor tech, memory processor tech board. Never worked. Never worked at all. And there was no software available for the 6502, um, except in the Apple ecosystem, and that's uh, where we were with the incompatible processor for all of history. I, uh, I completely forgot about a call computer. Uh, that was the other. That was the, that was actually the other first job I had that summer. Yeah, Alex I had, Yes, uh, so I had come out in June of '76, and Steve was graciously trying to help me find work. There wasn't that much to do with the Apple one, and so he got me a job with Call Computer. Or working hourly for 3.50 an hour, I think, assembling modems. And I didn't even know until later. I think you designed that modem, did yes. you not? Yes, it, it was all analog. Uh, a couple of Yeah, times. I don't take credit for designing it. It was sort of a data sheet of, a, of one of the companies that made something. Yeah, so that, that I, I didn't know anything about modems. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know how to. It was all I could do to just learn the resistor code and solder them together. Uh, Alex is quite a character. Maybe that's enough said about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I also remember at home for computer club, Randy was assigned the job of setting up a Tuesday night chat, chat X session for it was free to all the Homebrew Computer Club members. So and so I went on and I analyzed the program. It was written in basic and it, as soon as it was it, it always grabbed this file called ChatX that you would type into and then everybody else who was online would read what you had typed. So I just wrote a program to sit there, wait until ChatX was free, grab the file and dump nine pages of Polish jokes into it. <laughs> Every meeting I would say, What is wrong with ChatX? It just keeps that the jokes at me right Yeah, I got in trouble for you back then. Yeah. <laughs> I remember at Apple, I got hired by uh, Steve Jobs for uh, $3 an hour and for programming. And uh, the only way I finally made a raise is that I gave us a shortcut through to 7-Eleven. Uh, uh, Moz was tired of walking all the way around the fence, so I actually cut a hole through the fence. <laughs> he may one day and found a bunch of boards on his desk, and uh, my pay rate went up after that. <laughs> so when we started putting together the uh, 
the Apple IIs when we got our first building. Uh, I remember like the, the night before we formally took possession, Waz and Randy and I went over there. Uh, there was no furniture in it. Half of the building was carpeted and half the building was linoleum. The carpeted half was sales and marketing and the linoleum part was engineering and manufacturing. Um, and the only thing that was installed were the telephones. Now, when you're in a building with nothing but telephones in it and Steve Wozniak, <laughs> you, know that, you know that you're going to have some fun. And basically, we, we played this game of tag running around the room, buzzing each other on the, the PBX system and, and trying to uh, buzz the phone that the other guy was on before he could buzz you back. And it was you know, like a, a somewhat grown-ups game of electronic tech. Um, and then it got populated. There were lab benches, and there were desks, and there was Steve's desk, and there was um, uh, Dana Reddington's desk. And what the hell happened to all those people? But um, and. Uh, then, you know, started getting the cases for the Apple II and getting ready for the first West Coast Computer Fair, and we hired Mike Scott, who was president of the company, and uh, he decided that uh, having a uh, loose-leaf report cover technical reference manual was inadequate, so one day he and um, Tom Livingston, I guess it was, gathered together everything that they could find out of anybody's, tech, anybody's desk drawer that looked technical and took it down to PIP printing and had it printed and bound, you know, uh, consistent or not, accurate or not, whatever. And that was the first uh, red book, the Apple II reference manual. Uh, and we had a lot of problems back in those days with, you know, simple manufacturing stuff that there is for copying it. I remember the Burnby sockets drove us nuts. Uh, you know, we almost didn't do socketed stuff. And Apple documentation never got any better. Oh, no, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one of my biggest problems with the original uh, Apple II keyboard was it extended about an inch beyond the, the lip of the case, so if you lifted up the case too much, it would pop the keyboard right out of the case, right out of the screws. And the summer of 77, we had this huge problem with electrostatic discharge. Whenever you'd walk across the, the uh, carpet, if you touched an open case of an Apple II, you fried the keyboard chip. And we were replacing keyboard chips all the time. Yeah, I'll get back to that point. We had, we had actually, um, our documentation for those days got you to understand the computer down to the lowest level of chips, and so many people actually learned from it. Um, I hear a lot of good stories from that. But um, yeah, the Apple One originally, <coughs> it came back on a group that I already had a video terminal I had designed and built. I wanted to combine a microprocessor with it. And these Intel microprocessors were rumored to be 400 bucks you know, my apartment rental was 300, 400 bucks for a processor. I could never afford that. And then I found out I could get a motor, uh, Motorola 6800 for $40 as a Hewlett Packard employee. So the board is actually designed and has the nomenclature for a 6800 chip. Then the MOS technology 6502 came out for $20, 25 bucks, and it was pin for pin electrically compatible with the 6800 that I had done all of my drafting of the design for the computer. So I said, whoa, I can use this one because it's easy to buy. I don't have to go down to a parts distributor that wants me to fill out all these forms like I'm a company with people who get you know, PO numbers and people who have officers in the company and all these credit reports that just don't apply to a normal person who has a $20 bill. I can go down to the Westmont show and pay a $20 bill over the counter and chuck that up self handed back a nice 6502 microprocessor and five bucks for a manual and drove home. Uh, it was so exciting and easy to put that together that there were two chips, a 6501 and a 6502. The 6501 
like the Motorola 6800, needed higher um, power, faster clocking circuits built out of transistors with a little higher voltage and all that. And I still have the parts on the board since it was designed for a 6800 anyway. So you could actually plug in a few little transistors and resistors and all that, and a 6501 would save five bucks. But um, you know, we went with the, uh, the better choice. Another good choice that we made was Dynamic Rams came out that year, 1965. I'm at the Homebrew Computer Club, and first of all, the electronics magazines I'm reading, Gil Packard, the 4K Dynamic Ram is the first time ever that silicon RAM is going to be cheaper than magnetic core memory. And you can see the future. All of a sudden, that is the right way to go. But every single one of the hobby computer kits being built, every single one bar none, used the 2104 static RAM. Four times more expensive, 2102, whatever it was. Four times more expensive, four times as many chips, and I was trying to reduce cost and reduce chips. And I guess they just didn't want to figure out how to design refresh circuits. You know, but to me, the ops engineer, the goal was how do you design them with the fewest parts? So I, I bought some, I bought, there were three companies that came out with the 4K dynamic RAM. AMI, some Texas company, either MOSFET or TI, and Intel. And Intel, of course, would be so expensive, forget it. I looked at all the data sheets and loved that Intel one. Oh, the chips were TTL compatible, they were fewer pins, smaller packages, and even though you had to put in a little bit extra circuitry to feed half the address and then the other half, it turns out that um, I measured circuit complexity by the number of pins, and the number of pins still wound up being less, so it was a better chip. But I couldn't afford anything from Intel, so I didn't even look that way. I bought at the club, I bought eight AMI chips, probably from some employee of AMI, first I made a friend, built in my refresh service and actually got it working on the Apple One. I could bring it down to the Homebrew Computer Club and demonstrate something that now only had eight chips for 4K of RAM. And that was another way to kind of impress people, because back then I couldn't talk to anyone unless they were impressed with my work. And um, as funny as it sounds. So uh, anyway, Steve Jobs called him, what about the Intel one? I said, well, it's Intel, it'd be too expensive. He says, what if I can get it for free? Well, he could talk his way into anything, basically. <laughs> the rules, yeah, the rules didn't apply, <laughs> and he still can. And uh, he called a rep, um, he told me, and, and got, eight, got 16 chips of the Intel one. So we got on the right path for the RAMs that were really going to be the future of RAMs, the ones that were going to evolve over time. I recently ran into somebody who said, oh, actually, uh, Gordon Moore knew Steve's father and gave the RAMs. So I don't know what the true story is. Steve never quite lives on his sources of things like, like where did the name Apple come from and that sort of stuff. Uh, the, Apple, the Apple logo that was on the Apple One manual was drawn by Ron Wayne. When we started the company, Steve and I decided to have 45% each and give Ron Wayne, a fellow that Steve had met at Atari, 10% because Ron kind of had instant answers to everything. He was one of these arch-conservative guys who read all these books like None Dare Call Treason. So he had instant answers to everything. I thought, wow, that's a good guy to answer any disputes between us. He's so smart. He can sit down at a typewriter and type out the legalese that only lawyers know, know with all the legal words. And uh, he drew the, he, he actually drew the, um, the etching on our Apple manual, Newton Under the Apple Tree. Uh, he wrote the entire manual. And eventually, what we were getting parts on 30 days credit, building computers in the garage, driving them down to the store and getting paid cash in 10 days when we had 30 days credit on the parts. He got worried that if we ever didn't get paid, Steve had no money, no bank account, no car. I had no money, no bank account, no car. They'd have to come to him and get his gold nuggets or something. So he might have made a statistically an intelligent decision to sell out this 10% of Apple for a few hundred bucks. And that was Ron Wayne. And, yeah, I'm sure he doesn't regret it. I mean, he made decisions at the time that turn out wrong doesn't mean they were the wrong decision. So, any more Apple One stories? I think I think people have tried to locate Runway without success. Oh yeah, that's the least.
Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it popped up one day. He and I and Steve Jobs were all at Apple, and I had a camera in my pocket. Pulled it out and took a picture, and I didn't have, and it didn't have a battery or something. I looked later and had no picture. No, maybe it was no memory card, something stupid like that. <laughs> Too bad, it would have been a great picture. Is that an Apple? Well, I remember going over to Ron Wayne's house with Steve Jobs. He also was the one who just, who, his name is on the schematic. What, so you had a hand-drawn schematic and he did a No, 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 no. I did hand-drawing, I did, I did the, um, the actual, I did the actual drafting, little pattern, drafting of all of our schematics after one, after two. Sometimes they would get redone by other people later, maybe for a manual, but um, there wasn't any real reason for it. Yeah, I was noticing his name was on it. Like, Ron Wayne. Well, yeah. he was in charge of our name. You know, Ron Wayne had another interesting talent, which was he was building pendulum clocks out of cardboard. Do you remember that? He had a kit to make clocks where every part of it was out of cardboard, which now I think of it reminds me of one of Jeff Raskin's hobbies. Well, that sort of thing about Ron Wayne that was so impressive that Steve and I took him as an equal partner. He had all these little you know, you could just about make anything out of nothing. That sort, of, that sort of people are kind of surprised you with their abilities and talents. And speaking of surprising with their abilities and talents, I'll never forget driving up to Homebrew Computer Club with you early. Chris and I were the ones that had to carry the TV. Um, and uh, you would sit there before the meeting and type in uh, integer basic in hex. I mean, he would, he would literally be typing with one hand, turning the page with the other hand. You typed it in for, uh, I guess, about a an hour, something like that, and that was or the origins of the uh, cassette interface. Well, <laughs> 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 um, yeah, typing the basic, well, it's, um, one of the stories is all of the, I could not afford an assembly. There was an online assembler that you could dial in with a terminal and a modem, and you could actually, um, you could actually type a 6502, a of programming, and have it compile it and tell you what the ones and zeros were. Well, in my case, since I couldn't afford that, I just wrote the program on the right-hand side of a sheet of paper, and I hand-wrote the ones and zeros, the hexadecimal on the left side, and sometimes you get wrong trying to guess. It's probably about 30 bytes ahead, so I'll put in hexadecimal for a jump of 30, and then I'll go back later and correct it, and um, wrote the entire thing, everything by hand, all the way up to every bit of code that's in the Apple II, was never run through an assembler by that point in time, so which is kind of unusual. I look back at it, I still got those manuals, and um, the cassette tape interface saved me a lot of time because I would sit typing about 4K of basic in, and it would take me about 40 minutes during the Homebrew Computer Club meeting. So once I got it in, I could actually run basic. Don't ask me how I could type that accurately, that much data. But then design the cassette tape interface to use a normal cassette tape because everything I had to use had to be virtually for free. I could never afford some kind of commercial tape unit like the Hill Patton would have gone with. And, um, and so a little cassette tape, you know, all it did was put out, you know, pulses of different frequencies and measure what came back from the tape and it worked. And so it was almost a forerunner of the floppy disk interface. The uh, important thing about uh, Steve's cassette interface is that it only worked on cheap recorders. It was a Radio Shack model that was uh, Apple, Apple recommended. And if you tried to use it on a good quality cassette recorder, it wouldn't work. But on the, uh, it's always going with cheap parts. In this case, only the cheap parts. Yeah, I never heard that, but I thought it worked. We sold a lot of Apple Ones and Apple Twos. Even Apple Two came out originally with the cassette tape interface only. Boy, all the numbers of companies have spun up putting out tape. You walk into a store and there's an Apple Two, and a whole ton of tapes of mostly games. But the, it really made us look big. Like you know, you see all these accessories with the iPod. It makes you look like a bigger part of the world and more substantial. Now, it took a lot of work to do that because uh, in uh, early '77, 
when we were on a growth curve uh, shipping Apple ones and then Apple twos, uh, we didn't have a tape duplicator. And the way to duplicate these, this system software for the Apple II, which was the, the set of basic games we shipped, um, was a, a rack of Panasonic cassette tape machines all run off the same Apple II. And the way you do it is you type in the command to dump the program to tape. And somebody had designed this octopus um, audio splitter that went out of the cassette out jack and went to all of the tape. And then you had to press play and record on all of the tape machines simultaneously and then return on the keyboard. And anybody who had some spare moments and was available in the room was supposed to start and stop the tape duplication whenever they could. And when somebody would come in to talk to um, you know, Mike Scott about like a $25 million line of credit at Bank of America or, or opening up new distributorships or something like that, he would interrupt the meeting, go, go up, pop the tapes out, put in new blank tapes, start it again, and go back and say, okay, now what were we saying? <laughs> and, and, and that was the kind of environment it was. There, it was, I, I don't want to say it was an ego-free environment because there were massive egos, but nobody had a pride investment in, I don't do that, that's not my job. Uh, everybody was pulling together and doing whatever it took to get stuff done, and people would do multiple jobs uh, just to move the company forward. And it wasn't, it's not like they were moving the company forward. It was like moving the, the product forward, moving the Apple One, moving the Apple Two forward. It was just an, an inspiring environment. Now, when we were showing off the Apple One, even the DC 76 show, we had the Apple Two design. It was a three month design. In the, very, very quickly, but we were keeping kind of secret about it. As far as Apple One, how did we sell? Steve Jobs used to get on the phone, call up the stores that were opening around the country, and there weren't too many, probably just a couple of dozen cities that had computer stores, and he would tell them what we had and what price and send them some brochures if they wanted to work business that way. One time, I was driving in Southern California. I popped into a store, and I, saw, I drove by it. I think I saw the name. I didn't know about it in advance. A computer store in Orange, California. And I walked in, talked to the guy, showed up an Apple One board, and told him what it did. And uh, he sat down and said, well, he was thinking about opening up this display of a whole bunch of Apple Ones playing the game. I showed him playing Star Trek off of two cassette tape. And he would set it up, and he, he bought about 20 Apple Ones, and he had all these stations you could come in and rent time and play Star Trek on it, which was a text-based game. And, and that was the sort of way we made sales back then. So... Do you think that was that was that related to the Orange Computer Company, which I remember? No. no. I don't nope. remember. Nope. They, nope. Not related. No. Orange Computer. Anyway, so on the same subject, uh, I have to say one of my most vivid memories of the summer of '76 is when you would show up at the garage, and with a new version of Basic, and Steve Jobs would read it off the page, and you would touch type like a maniac, just kind of typing in the hex. Which just completely amazed me. I didn't. You know. Another uh, great design characteristic of the Apple One was the uh, area where you could uh, put in the parts that were uh, identified, and you would have an RF modulator. But we weren't allowed to uh, create and sell one of our own, right, because of uh, FCC rules. No, we had no RF modulator built onto the board. No, the parts that we built in were only for clocking. Uh, a 1600 style chip that needed better clocks. We went, when we came out with the Apple II, they just think that was for when we came out with the Apple II, um, we needed a way to get it into your television set, and televisions didn't have video in. 
I just understood the back of my set with a schematic stroke with an oscilloscope and found where the video went, built a transistor inverter to get my video into my home TV. But um, the way to get it in would be to broadcast it on a channel, like channel 3 or channel 34 or whatever. Some of the early VCRs were um, out, I think, at that time, and that's how they were doing it. But uh, I was a ham radio operator, and we're supposed to protect the purity of the waves, and how do you know what you're allowed to transmit and what you don't when there's no law? So I wouldn't let Apple build a, a modulator really against it. And they worked a sneaky agreement behind my back to just funnel this other guy, the, uh, the shipment rates of our Apple IIs, and the circuit for, yeah, Marty Fredell made the M&R Super Mod Modulator to get it on TV sets. Yeah, I was um, just afraid of, trans, you know, going, of being one of those guys that puts out waves that disturb. The airwaves should be clean and pure, so they work well. They work well. When somebody comes out with a product that puts out bad frequencies or, or too much power, really, all of the formulas for what makes radio work go downhill. Now, even though the um, the Apple One was revolutionary in its time because you had the opportunity of buying one assembled and tested by Dan Cocky, uh, and if you wanted a uh, an alter or an inside, you had to uh, just get the parts and put them together yourself. Although some people would would uh, sell you the services of assembling it for you, and, and having soldered together a couple of processor technology, 4K by uh, four RAM boards, uh, it was certainly worth the money. But uh, even when you got the Apple One uh, assembled and tested, you remember you just got the bare board. There was no case. There was no keyboard. And well, the, well, there was the power supply circuitry, but you had to supply your own power transformers. You had to go out and buy the two transformers, wire them to 110 yourself, and wire them up to the Molex connector to plug into the board. Um, a lot of people, I, on my own, I couldn't find the Molex connector, so I just soldered the uh, leads right to the um, right to the um, the diodes that were the uh, the full wave rectifier bridge uh, on the board. And I, I still remember the smell when I burned out the diode by, by putting it back. Uh, those those things stick with you. Uh, and so it, putting together the Apple One was, it, it was, you had to go pick up the things in various places. And I remember my first keyboard, Quasendrops uh, gave me the, uh, the bare board and let me populate it myself, but I still needed the keyboard. And I remember getting, I remember getting my first keyboard for my Apple One uh, in the parking lot of the bike shop in Santa Clara, somewhere in, in like the fall of 1976, I was talking with this guy and I had written a couple of programs on the Apple One with, that were demos, and he said, uh, okay, uh, you give me that program, and I think I got a keyboard in my trunk. So he went out of his car, and he opened his trunk, and he had an 8-bit ASCII. Uh, it was um, positive going last, not negative going last, so I needed to wire it in an inverter on the breadboard area in order to make it work. Uh, and then I had my keyboard, and then I, could, um, then I could use my Apple One. I didn't have any case for it, though. But at school, there was a cardboard box that I picked up in the computer lab. And so for the rest of that year, I carried around my Apple One in a punch card box labeled IBM. Well, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mentioned that when I gave the first Apple One to Wiseau. Steve and I agreed to both, both give, and I didn't have to pay this time, uh, our first Apple Two, or one of our first ones to visit Homestead High School, because we had both attended Homestead High School. Subject to the cases, I can remember going to see carpenters with Steve Jobs to look at guys who would make some wooden cases for us. And I remember 
uh, some guy promoting this great Goa wood that he wanted to use to make the cases out of, or teak. Uh, the, the one of the slide, I had never seen that one before. I'm not, I'm not positive, but I believe that was uh, built by my brother when he was unemployed over the summer. And uh, he was just looking for something to do and uh, put uh, several Apple IIs in cases. I know he, he built a, a set of Apple II cases. I don't know if that's one. Yeah, I remember my own original case for my prototype, hand soldered, hand wired, Apple One and Apple Two. Actually, those cases were wooden ones made by a grandee's either father or brother, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. And Steve Headley at Homestead, who ran the wood shop as well as computer lab, uh, and somewhat interchangeably, uh, he also did some wooden cases for Apple Two. And I've always been under the impression that that's one of his, but I didn't know about his brother, so it could very well be that one. Um, so I, I remember Mark went to Homestead sometime in the uh, early 80s and said, have you got old Apple stuff here? And Henley produced, you know, a, a pre-production, a hand-built Apple one in a pre-production Apple II uh, whose logic board wasn't even solder masked. It was white, it wasn't green. And said, oh yeah, I've got these around. I mean, somebody brought them in. It was me. Um, and he gave them to Markle, and Markle gave them to the Smithsonian. So it was cool. Cool. Let's see. Um, that's Apple One. Yeah, it was. Um, what do you What do you guys think made Apple the the success, the breakthrough success? What made Apple the breakthrough success? I think the world was waiting for the right combination of things. Um, I, I think um, the fancifulness had aspect of a computer had to come into being, and I think. A keyboard helped that, color helped it, games helped it, and also the marketing is probably harder. I think it's a lot easier. I don't want credit for starting uh, the, the whole world on the homebrew computers. I just want the credit for designing a good one. Um, Steve Jobs and Mike Markla really had all the ideas of communicating to the public why a computer can do things for you, that it can be valuable in the home. And yes, it can do your recipe, it can store your recipes, and it can uh, uh, help manage your checkbook and all this. And it's not really so much where the world for personal computers came. What we had was sort of the vision was, this is the product that will do it all. But really, it was quite a step. Um, you know, other products and other markets that came along really made it as big as it was. But um, so, uh, you know, it was really trying to, but still, publicizing the fact that a computer can look attractive and attractive people at a home and, you know, keeping their home together can actually use a product was a, a big part of it. Yeah, I think, uh, I think Steve Jobs had a lot to do with that. I mean, he learned that from Mike Markle and sort of keeping doing the same thing, making, making technology that's easy for people to use. Because, I mean, Chris, you know, you've heard all these horror stories about how hard it was to build your own computer. That was totally true. I actually built an Apple One, which we never got running because I was so bad with the soldering iron. Uh, I, oh, I, came over, I came over and soldered it. We did get running. But it broke very shortly there. After. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it was just so hard to get something working. And uh, Apple was the first one that really sort of packaged it all together where a relatively normal person uh, they wouldn't be able to store their recipes on it. We never did that. We did we did checkbook balancing and I don't think anyone ever successfully used it other than Mark Markle and myself. Uh -huh. Well also this was back in the days when you know we didn't have of course we had hardware that failed, ships would go bad on the Apple One, because you could touch them with the static would zap the processor or some PMOS RAMs and I didn't have some uh, uh, TTL input pull downs that would cause them to be flaky. But um, the Apple II, the processor is about the only thing you can zap with static. 
But still, yes, still, yeah, the keyboard. But we still have basically no hardware or software bugs ever that I heard of for either of those products. So I think when you handwrite the code, you are so close to it in your mind all the time, so close to it, there's higher reliability way of developing software. Was there any moments when you guys thought Apple wouldn't make it? All of them. All of them. Well, but just to backtrack a little bit on the on the subject of back in the garage, I think the week I arrived in 76, Steve Jobs' father had just built a burning box. I had no idea what this was. It was a coffin-shaped box out of a plywood that the Apple Ones needed, the whole 10 Apple Ones, and you powered them up and let them run overnight. And so that was actually one of my first jobs was taking, putting them in, burning them in, and taking them out of testimony. And, uh, and then, uh, so, when I finally transitioned from Apple production into Apple engineering in 78, that was my first job in engineering, was to build a modular burn-in rack test system for the Apple II boards. And on the subject of failures, the thing that plagued us at the time was that you would burn in the Apple II boards and the, the little monolithic 0.1 microfarad capacitors would sometimes short out during the burning and the power supply wouldn't shut off, and so the whole boards would get, uh, the boards would get burned up in the burning box. I don't know if you remember that. Maybe you never saw that. That was actually the worst failures that, that I ever saw in my year in, in production at Apple. So uh, back to your question, were there times I thought Apple would make it? Um, there were two main times I can remember. One was uh, the night that uh, Steve Jobs called everybody that uh, Woz knew and said, you've got to get Steve to do this company. He's, he, he doesn't want to do it. He wants to stay at HP. He wants to move to Corvallis. And uh, you got you got to tell him that you know doing this company is the right thing. I'm sure you remember that now. Um, and the other is when we were doing the uh, disk drive in uh, Las Vegas and worked all night. And in the morning, I backed it up the wrong direction and destroyed um, quite a few hours of work. I think I was the one that backed it up the wrong way. Well, um, yeah, there was also a time when we came up with the Apple II. This is about Apple One related stuff, but. Um, yeah, the Apple II, and uh, our sales went up right away. We started selling them in all the stores after the West Coast Computer Fair introduction. And uh, after a while, time, we were starting to pile up a bunch of boxes in our one building, our one facility, and people could see, you know, dozens of computers that weren't shipped, weren't sold yet. It, it's like all of a sudden marketing, you know, instead of engineering having, having the um, the monkey, all of a sudden it was marketing. You had to get to selling them. But around that time, we came out with the floppy disk drive, and VisiCalc showed up, and then the world went bananas, and... We couldn't keep up with it for quite a long time. Um, yeah, uh, I never really thought Apple wouldn't make it. Now, I did. I felt it was just out of my own integrity. I was going to be myself. I wasn't going to be pushed around, influenced by big business and by money and stuff like that in my life. And I made up my mind. That, yeah, I did. I, you know, I had designed two computers, cassette tape interfaces, uh, written all the software. I'd written a basic, done all the stuff, moonlighting from Hewlett Packard. Five turndowns from Hewlett Packard, by the way. And I figured, you know, God, I can just keep doing that when we start Apple. I'll just keep moonlighting, and if it doesn't go, I still got my job for life at HP. And I love designing computers so much and helping the world, you know, get advanced. But I could do that on my own time. So yeah, I did say no to Steve Jobs and Mike Markleff for for starting the real corporation, the real Apple II, moving out of the garage. Uh, moving into the garage was another ethical consideration. Steve said, Why don't we sell some PC ports? The whole idea wasn't even to have a computer company. It was just to sell components, PC ports. Steve had worked in surplus stores like Haltech and selling parts. You don't buy them cheap and sell them expensive. 
or for, for more. And um, and that was <laughs> so, so it wasn't really like we were even selling computers. Good God, I was passing out the schematics and serving it to the Apple One. I'm sure there's no IP violation on these Apple One replicas. Um, they were you know, we didn't even put uh, copyright notices on them to back at home for computer club days. So um, um, so anyway, uh, so Sequan didn't really want to start a computer company, but I said, wait, first of all, I think anything I design belongs to my company, HP. You know, and um, and I've used their parts, and so I went to HP, and we had a big meeting to do a computer that could run basic, let you type your own programs in, let you type games in, let you type solutions to work, and watch it on your RCA television. And one of the answers came back was, well, Hewlett Packard has to build finely controlled products that are guaranteed to work for engineers who expect professional equipment. Our, our, our only consumer product really was the calculator. And what if the television set didn't show the picture well? Was it the television's problem? Was it Hewlett Packard's problem? Those kind of issues HP did not want to ever get into. They only wanted to deliver 100% reliable, sure working uh, program for the, the specs. So they didn't go with the Apple One. When I got an order for, was Steve, Steve Jobs called me up one day, and he had an order for $50,000. 100 fully built computers, we'd be paid $500 each from the bike shop. Now that was a shock, because $50,000 was more than twice my annual salary at Hewlett Packard as an engineer. So I went to Hewlett Packard's legal department and made them cycle uh, a description of our product to every single Hewlett Packard division to make sure that I wouldn't, they wouldn't come back and accuse me of doing something wrong, you know, doing something wrong for the sake of money or your own company, something I could never do. And then, um, let's see, what was another? Hewlett Packard eventually started building a computer on my floor of our calculator lab. And it had a microprocessor. And it had some dynamic memory. And it had a little video screen, black and white. And it had a keyboard, a human keyboard. You could type programs in basic. And they had five people assigned to writing the basic. And it had a tape drive. And I'd done cassette All these things I had just done. But I didn't care. I, I went to the, the director and I said, of the project, and I said, my life isn't calculated. My life has always been about computers. I want to be on this Capricorn project. I'll do anything. I'll do a printer interface. I don't have to do you know any major role in it. Or, you know, I want to do it. And they turned me down again for that one. So, but Hewlett Packard, if they had bought the Apple into the Apple idea, it never would have happened. They never would have done a product that would have inspired normal people. All the people who were outside of the uh, professional engineering industry. All the people that never came around computers. The dentists, the teachers, the lawyers, the, the sort of people that really um, Apple was going to open up the uh, window for. People have been predicting the imminent demise of Apple Computer for as long as there's been an Apple Computer. And given uh, Silicon Valley and high-tech firms and startups in general, um, odds on that you're right when you predict the imminent demise of a startup company. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure what and how many things we did right. Uh, we had a consumer-oriented, humanist-oriented approach to a high-tech area, and that was, uh, that was audacious. Not a lot of people were doing that. Uh, when high-tech companies got into consumer products, it was like um, Intel with their Micron Tub division with their watch. Did anybody ever have one of Intel's original digital watches? There. No, you can't raise your arm that far if you ever own one of those. <laughs> uh, and, and part of it was just getting lucky and being in the right place in the right time. Uh, but there were odds against us from the very beginning. Uh, and some of the very engineering decisions that made our products excellent 
also branded us for life and giving us some struggles. Uh, if you go to the Smithsonian Institution in the Information Age exhibit, when you get to the point where there's the school classroom scene with the Apple I and the Apple II on the desk, behind it on the blackboard, written so that you can't take a picture of these machines without getting this in the shot, is the word incompatible. <laughs> And from the very beginning, by picking the 6502 instead of the 8080, people said Apple was incompatible. No S100 bus, no 8080 instruction set, no uh, infrastructure support. You can't interchange peripherals. Um, that by being incompatible with the rest of the industry, Apple is always going to be in a weaker position and something is always going to come along to knock it off. And the number of Apple One killers I mean, of course the S100 bus was going to beat the Apple One, right? And then when the Apple II came along, well, the Commodore Pet was going to beat the Apple II, and the uh, K-Pro was going to beat the Apple II, and the, I mean, I remember we were at First West Coast Computer Fair, we looked at the sphere and thought, geez, that is a wicked machine, that's just gonna, who ever heard of the sphere? <laughs> and look where you are, and look at, look who you are. <laughs> So we, you know, from the very beginning, uh, we knew, and I think this was something that Markle brought, is that he knew the dynamics of high tech and of shakeouts and how to survive a shakeout. And Jobs was a master marketer who knew how to sell, you know, ice cubes to Eskimos. And we had a great product that once you got to use it, people just loved using it. I mean, I always always said that I loved the um, Apple One because it had um, advanced consumer design because it came pre-soldered. And it had a revolutionary user interface because you type your programs in in hexadecimal instead of toggling them in in binary. Um, and for 1976, that was an advanced user interface. Uh, but just being a little ahead of the curve on the human factors of it and knowing how to keep a company alive uh, when a lot of other companies are going to fail for one reason or another, um, and I think that's what pitted. I'm a lot more bullish, actually. Right from the start, it was having the, the technology and the better technology was more important, especially Apple One type days. And we could just, the Apple One was one set of chips that was affordable, it was a complete computer you could type programs into. By the time you added all the pieces to any other computer to type programs into, you were out so much money. Where would you find the input device? A teletype, the input output? Um, it was just too, way too expensive. So. Cost-wise, even the Apple One was there, and the Apple Two was just so far ahead of features no one ever imagined. You know, it become the small computers, and it was out of the box usable, and we priced it high deliberately because Mike Markle knew that we, you know, had to have a high profit margin to grow a company because the stress of growing and you know expanding and selling more units every month costs a lot of money, and you got to have the high profit margin. So. Are sold for more than the, the Commodore Pet. But with the Pet, you got you know really limited basic computer that really wasn't expandable. And people with computers, it's like high fives. You want to be able to buy new stuff and plug it in and try new things out all the time. And we had our bus with the slots you could plug cards in. We could develop a floppy disk eventually. Um, we had enough RAM that you could write an operating system. We had enough RAM that you could um, run physical when when it came out and changed the world. So really, it was actually little things that we hadn't really intended or thought about or talked about in advance, but uh, by having such a full computer, we were able to move with the markets as they evolved and, and developed, whereas Radio Shack and Palmer had to go back to the drawing board with their early entries. And those are the only other two low-cost computers that really at least did some right things. They had engineers, they had dynamic memory, so they had the cost figure on the RAM run. Right. 
Steve came up with this 666666 price company. Yeah, Steve came up with this uh, order for 100 computers, Apple Ones, fully built boards. That means the computers you still have to assemble. You had to hook all the wires from a keyboard up. You had to get a keyboard. You had to buy some transformers at Radio Shack and wire the power in. You had to take the video output and get it into a monitor of some sort. So the Apple One wasn't really out of the box, just use it. It wasn't ready, what I would call a real personal computer for the masses. It was still for technical hobbyists. And we had, the price was $500 that we'd be paid by the bike shop of Palo Alto or whatever, wherever it was. And Steve said, well, what do we, what do we put, put for a retail price? Well, add about a third. That makes it 667. And then I thought, and I was into repeating digits because of my uh, great phone numbers in my life. I collected a lot of great repeating digit phone numbers. And I hit my first dial joke at 255-6666. I said, let's make it 666. They said, no, 666666. It's all the same digit. Yeah, neither one of us had ever heard of uh, you know, 666 being a number of the beast. So other people told us that and we laughed. <laughs> so kind of, kind of surprising in retrospect that uh, Paul Terrell in the bike shop didn't want to double his wholesale cost for the resale price. I don't know. We never talked to Paul Terrell about what we should list up our advertisements and retail price. We were just selling it to him at his price. But he and sold for six. He did. Yeah, he was a little bit. Um, says like he was the one that um, told me later years that yes, he came by his store and, and he had followed been down to the Homebrew Computer Club. He'd been watching me with the machine and, and he saw that it was sort of a complete machine that could be built. And when he really ordered from Steve, he wanted complete, ready to pull out of the box and use machines. Uh, and said to Steve that, that he, people don't want to come in the store and buy kits anymore. They, so he's got technicians in the back room. Wiring up the kids into fully built computers, and people come in the store, they want to buy something fully built. So he was a little bit dissatisfied that he even had to hook up the Apple One a little more. He like, thought was he wasn't quite getting what he had really ordered. Um, I didn't know any of this, though. I didn't feel that. Well, so on the subject of what made the Apple II so successful, what comes to mind, of course, is the plastic case, the Jerry Manic design, and the lightweight switching power supply that Rod Holt contributed. And, and what people also often say is the extendable slots. Now, there was some debate between you and Steve Jobs about the slot architecture, right? Do you remember that? Well, remember, Steve wasn't really um, a technical engineer type person. They never wrote a line of code. So, uh, you know, I was around computers my whole life. You plug in lots of boards, and it's like plugging in those elements of a hi-fi. You want, always want to add things to a computer. And I come up with a really clever scheme for pre-decoding addresses to each slot. Because to me, every piece of hardware now is going to be software plus hardware. So a range of addresses meant that a slot could have a little bit of code in ROM to run a program and do its stuff. So it didn't have to be pure hardware. That saved a lot of chips. Well, I come up with this clever scheme that one chip would decode eight sets of addresses at once for eight slots. And another chip would decode a different set of eight addresses. And that was so clever. Two chips was doing all this work that when you bought parts for the S100 systems, you had to have toggle switches to toggle in the address you wanted that board to respond to, like A, B, or 7, 8. Toggle in the address, and then it had comparator chips on the board. And by the time you plugged in eight boards, you'd wind up with about 40 chips, you know, that where I had done everything in two chips. Steve said, let's, let's just build a machine. All people want is a printer and a motor. Well, that was all that was visible to him. And, uh, you know, and I, that was a ridiculous idea to me, and I just said, uh, no, we're going to have eight chips. You know, get your own computer. My real motivation was I had this clever design for eight chips. Why would I throw it away and not even save one chip? 
I mean, if you could have said, well, you can save a chip, then I might have thought twice. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that is really funny. It's, it's how the past is eternally present. There's this big debate about why the new Core 2 Duo MacBook Pros can only go up to 3 gig of RAM and not go up to 4 gig of RAM. And it's the same reason that an Apple II went up to 48K instead of 64K, because we needed the top order of the memory for memory map.l. Okay. Oh, I think we're probably about done. Maybe I'll give you a question answer. Yeah, I think uh, let's... Uh do question and answer. Yeah, so uh, th I want to thank the, the uh, panel for this incredible journey. And then we'll give them a hand, and then we'll start the, the story period. And I can change my tape. Doing tech two at the same time is crazy. So we're going to have a period where, and I know some of you are dying to do this. Is okay. Go ahead. You know, I've read a lot of books about the founding of Apple. I've read the Stephen Levy's. I've read the Little Kingdom. Is there anything these authors got wrong? Thank you. Okay. One one more question. Then we're going to have people stand up and tell their two-minute stories. Is there anything the authors got wrong? Over the years, many times I go back and read things. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. But especially the early days of starting Apple, which was so interesting, you know, and the sort of talk that was going on. And it bothered me. But without a specific example, I can't really bring up specific things. Um, you know, I just wrote my own book to get things right. And I'm sure there's things wrong in there. <laughs> okay, folks. Uh, I think uh, Crunch. Wait a minute, you're J.D. Crunchman now. You had a story from those early days. Uh, so uh, why don't you take the mic and tell us. And you can stand up so people can see it. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the phone board, the computer, and a few other things. I was uh, basically developing uh, I was uh, working on an electronic uh, circuit, and I needed a computer to help me solve Chevy Chev and Butterworth circuit designs and filter designs. The formulas were overly complicated, and I was told by a guy by the name of Cal about Call Computer. I go to Call Computer and I learn that I can get online for just 99 cents an hour, and for the first week, I had a free account. Well, I wrote a, a few little programs, uh, one of them just to get used to basic programming, but never programmed before. And I wrote this little program to compute the, uh, the even-tempered scale of the music, the musical scale, just to understand how to use it. And then I started uh, working on other things, and then after a while, I, I got this really complicated program, and it was kind of like Spice. You put in a circuit, and it would solve the circuit with, you know, multiple uh, arrays using uh, array processing and things. And uh, it, uh, I left a printout on the floor by mistake. Alex Stanley called me up and chastised me for leaving a mess in the computer room. And he, then he said, what is this? And I explained it to him, and now he hired me as a programmer. He put me in charge of the public library. And so we had some students at Mountain View High School, and uh, Randy here and, uh, and Chris were part of the uh, development program. They called it the Apple Developers, not, not the Apple Developers, but the Hall uh, Computer Developers. And then high school kids come in, and I teach them how to use a computer. And uh, they set up the B900 accounts. B915 was Mountain View High School. 
Mine was B907. And there was a bunch of other B accounts. Now we just kind of maintain all that stuff. And I both have uh, cross assemblers. So I did a 6800. Uh, Randy here did a 6502. And uh, I think I did an F8 and an 88. And this was just during the time I learned all these little machine languages, all these little processors. Because I'd like to use little cross assemblers for it. And then later on, I did the phone work for Abbott. Uh, this was like in 76. And I can remember back in the days, uh, 77, yeah. Uh, back in the days when uh, Waz would have a, it was kind of in a little annex. It was kind of away from the main park. It was like the main building. And then there was a little, little building off to the side, a uh, little Apple Lab building. And this where Waz and Randy were there working on it. I think Randy kind of worked on a little printer, printer thing with a little 40 pound printer. And uh, they'd go to Bob's Big Boy and they'd print out these little things for your convenience. Little alpha seltzer tablets on the menus of Bob's Big Boy. And then uh, my phone board, when I got the phone board working, I, uh, I did the, uh, uh, I did a little test program, like a little, I think it was an answering service, a little call, you could enter in the number and uh, make the calls, and it would dial the number. The phone board was really amazing. I had originally designed it with nine chips. Uh, using uh, 8 bit A to B, A to B, and A to C, and then the speaker designed it with a four, uh, 6 bit DAC because it was less expensive. It just meant that it had to write more code. Oh, big deal. So it was much cheaper. So we got it down to five chips. And then uh, and then we started playing around with it, and I realized that in order to hook things up to the telephone, you had to go through a special interface device. So that the telephone company, this was the reason why we couldn't actually market it. Because in order to interface into the telephone line, you couldn't actually legally connect to the telephone without going through special kind of equipment. That was one reason. And the other reason is that the phone board could have evil thoughts. It could be used for naughty tones. At the time, the phone company still was using the old ancient in-band signaling, which of course caused all kinds of problems with toll fraud and other things like that. And so uh, after a while, I gave Waz the, uh, the cassette tape with a, little, with a little basic program on it, he could try out. I go home, and he reprogrammed it to call it Jobs House over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I come back to Apple the next day, and then, and then I, and I just get chastised. I couldn't figure out why, what, what happened. And he was like really, really mad pissed off at me. Anyway, so that's kind of the story that happened around, around thing. I can remember also Mike Scott. Uh, would, uh, would smoke in the lab, and I would kick him out, and I'd get a little, a little apple over there. Here you go. Actually, my smart thought didn't smoke. It's a trajectory to get you out of his way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good, too. Uh, so that phone board was actually kind of incredible because John, I'm so proud. He used one phase lock loop to not only generate touch tones, but to sense the tone that it was listening yeah, to. Listening so it could tell if you got, if you dialed in 1978 or 77, you could tell if you dialed and got a ringtone or a busy or whatever. And the modems weren't going to do that for another 12 years. To say, you know, modems just have to dial and wait for, you know, 30 seconds thinking it might be going through because they couldn't sense the tones and tell. Remember in 78, Yassi brought me back to Apple to make about 10 more of those boards? Oh, well, we did. Okay. Okay, thank you, Watts. Stories. Stories to relate under two minutes. Apple in 76. Anybody else here? Get back on top. Because we're almost at 3 o'clock, so. Uh, Should like you over there, then, right? Oh, oh, my goodness, I'm sorry. Oh, I just wanted to, to thank Steve for giving us the Apple because we took it into 
many, many, many schools. We took other computers into schools as well. Okay. And we had a storefront computer center that people came in for $10 a month. They could get all the unsold time. I think it was $2.50 an hour if you actually bought prime time. $10 a month, you could be a member. And you could stay there all night. Um, but when WAS first uh, brought the Apple One up to Katani, California, which was where we had our storefront at the Boot Center, uh, it was in a box, and I think it was in actually an old Apple packing crate, I think. It said Apple on the outside, it was a wooden box. And I remember it said, well, we're going to give you one of these. And I knew nothing about computers. I was interested in education and learning, and computers just seemed like a new toy. Um, so it was great, we're going to get this wonderful computer, but then when we got it, it was just this bare printed circuit board. I had no idea what to do with it at all. So, um, I would have helped, but the toddy was a long ways away. Yeah, it was a it was two, two, three hours away. Um, but then that's where we needed computers because they weren't going to get there from Sunnyvale and the other one. Um, so one of our friends, Glenn West, Worstel, who was um, at HP, actually in Santa Rosa, built the blue case that's down there and built the power supply for it. And then I still didn't have a keyboard and I had to call Waz up and say, well, how do we get anything in or out of this thing? He said, oh, well, you know, buy a keyboard. What kind of a keyboard? But you know, you could get a, get a, a Cherry Pro keyboard, that'll do it. So I had to drive all the way down to Palo Alto from the time because there was no, nothing in Sonoma County that you could buy anything without it. So it has a long history. And then, of course, I kept calling him up because we took, we take it into a classroom. We had a 40-minute class. It took 20 minutes to load basic all the set. And if it didn't load right the first time, if it didn't have it cheap enough to the quarter, you didn't have the volume set exactly right on the tape recorder to load. So then it would be another 20 minutes to load it, and that was the end of the program. That was the end of the class, so there were many math classes at Windsor Junior High School but didn't get to actually program. They got to learn that computers had uh, variable reliability. Yeah. Well, the Apple One basic was on cassette tape, so it took a, uh, a long time to load basic in, whereas in the Apple Two, we were the first company to use the brand new 2K ROMs, four of them, adding up to 8K bytes in the Apple Two. We're the, just the first. AMI was supposed to be the first company to come out with them. Theirs didn't come out correctly. We went over to Cinertech, and Cinertech did. So we used these Cinertech rods, and you turn on the machine, beep. How nice to have basic running at your command to get on in one tenth of a second. Less than that, actually. So, so during that time when that transition was happening, I was calling Steve every couple of weeks saying, what do I do with this thing? I can't use it. You want me to use it in schools? I want to use it in schools. We can't use it. So there was this, this dialogue going back and forth, and I finally sent the Apple one back to him and said, send me something that I can really use in, in, in complete idiot's environment. So we did. Okay. Uh, oh, here we go. My name is David Bjergren. Uh, I guess I would be guilty of introducing Wiser to you. Um, I don't know if I have a story to answer the question. That is, I didn't have any relationship at all with that computer in my life history. Uh, I did work at the time you were doing the homebrew show. 
the first format was working for a company called Probator, whose president was Seymour Rubenstein, uh, and I was on guilty of some of the design of work stuff. But, and the only other piece of my interaction is that I went to a party uh, and said goodbye to Steve Jobs the day he left. But I happen to have been sitting next to you on a couple of those occasions when you were entering um, basic at the keyboard of your flywheel box machine. And it struck me from looking over your shoulder that you actually didn't have the ability to backspace and cancel out if you didn't. Not that you made a lot of errors. Didn't you have that ability in that loader? For the Apple One? Backspace at Apple I can't remember. Yes. I'm sure I would have put it in. Yeah, why would I not? Of course, that's, the whole, that's one of the advantages of being able to type in a line. Yeah. I only had two, by the way, I only had 256 bytes of program to read in your commands to the Apple One, which were to store data in memory, to examine a block of memory, or run a program at a certain address. Just the things that a front panel would do. And that was 256 bytes. It took two chips, two prompt chips that we had at HP for developing calculator stuff. That's how few transistors were on typical chips back then. So, so, so of course I might not have that space because it's a limited amount of time you can write something. I'm sure of it. So if I could finish the di there's a small dialogue in like, um, So the other question that oh, yeah, yeah. Right. That, right. that when you announced the product. Uh, and from what you're saying today, it's much clearer because you explained that you had the video done prior, which isn't something you didn't mention at the homebrew meeting when you announced the product. Uh, you described how you had used um, address fetch timing to load uh, four, no, three, forty, uh, well, 128 bytes uh, in three segments or, pardon me, twice that perhaps, and then you were using 120 of the 128 available bytes that you loaded because this timing synchronized between the DRAM refresh and the video display refresh. Yet you did the vertical blank processing in the same clock interval that you did the DRAM refresh. And so you're relying on that to do the load. And I, at the time, was working, as I say, for a company that ran Vortex the operating system, and had lived with people throwing away eight bytes out of uh, 128 a lot, and asked you what it would take to be able to recover those eight bytes. And you said about a dollar thirty, and that's why it didn't happen. I think I said something like I should have bought stock, and instead I said programmers might curse your name without having to recover that. But that's a, that's all ancient history. Uh, we have Lama informed me we're now going over enough time that we probably only have time for a couple of questions. We only have time for a couple of questions because we're having a cake to cut and the pictures to take and whatnot. So sorry about that. We're kind of we're kind of crunched. Who's who's jumping up and down? Who's back here? Come up, come right up to the mic and state your name, rank, and so on. John Elbert, uh, programmer. Um, I've been going over the WASP monitor and some of the, the code. Uh, one thing is there just a request to put uh, out of the public a, a copy of the basic source code. 
uh, you know, everyone can disassemble it, but uh, supposedly there was handwritten on paper, and it'd be really great to be able to see your notes and, and kind of correlate that to the code. Uh, the other thing was, uh, could you just kind of go over a, a timeline as to how you rocked the 6502? You know, you obviously didn't. Uh, was, was that the first assembly coding that you were doing? Did you write the launcher before anything else? How, you know, how did that come along? Thank you. Okay. What was the first question? First question is, could you open, could you release a copy? Could release a copy? Yeah, I've got my handwritten notes of the basic, and I have plans for those. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mentioned a plan to bring them here to the, to the. I, I have time to kind of document what it is. I mean, I've got the notebooks. I actually say, really strange thing. I thought that I was on something big, but the Homer Computer Club made me feel like this was a revolution. So every single piece of paper that I ever scratched the least bit of thing on went all in chronological order with no dates on them into folders, 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 folders. You know, a, a huge long thing. I never threw one sheet of paper out through the entire design process. So I still got that kind of stuff. It, it, it'll show up someday. I mean, it really belongs almost in the digit barn more than any other place. But um, and the second question was, uh, what, how did you learn 6502? How did I learn 6502? Yeah, I had been into computers my whole life. I would sit down with many computers back in the late 60s when all the companies, uh, Data General, Varian, Hewlett Packard, um, Digital Equipment, had many computers, and I would design my own versions of them in hardware. But I would sit down and try to see how would I start to write assembly language code, even to maybe write something like a Fortran compiler, or at least start reading data. So I would start writing code, but I could never type it into anything. Never had tested assembly language anywhere except, yeah, in college. I programmed an assembly language on the, um, the CDC 6600 at Berkeley, beautiful risk machine language that I love. I took tons of courses in assembly language at um, De Anza. Trevor and I even had a, a key to the computer room where we'd go in at midnight and work uh, through the night. They didn't know we were there. And just run programs. I just love programming programs. So I've been around assembly languages as well as scientific languages. Oddly enough, I've never programmed in basic in my life. Why would I decide to write a basic instead of a Fortran? I could just tell that there were books out there like 101 basic games, and this was the sort of flavor you had to have for the new uh, interesting computers. Small computers, small low cost computers for people. What's the monitor? Okay. So, so was the monitor, it wasn't the first assembly language program I wrote, because I had courses that did, in colleges that used assembly languages of big mainframes. For a small computer, like a mini computer or an 8-bit computer, of course it was the first, um, was it, yeah, it was the first, uh, first assembly language, yeah, it was the first time I'd ever used that sort of assembly language ever. Um, wrote it, I programmed it into a couple of ROMs, brought them to my workbench one night. The first set using interrupts on the keyboard didn't work. I couldn't detect exactly why, but then I moved on to the polling routine, and it actually worked and shocked me. And uh, I had a 256 byte program done and completed working, and now it's time to move on to a 4K basic. Thank you. And I want to say, uh, Waz, uh, Digibar would love, would love to scan all those in for you. Uh, anyway, I want to let you know that uh, last year, uh, we actually found a copy of the so-called Waz Wonder Book uh, a couple of years ago and uh, was able to present that. That's how a lot of the notes from Waz's filing cabinet in the summer of 77. This is the Apple II. And we dutifully scanned it in. A guy in New Mexico hand-touched hand up some of the drawings. It was a whole photocopy of this, these notes. And we put it up under the digibarn.com and uh, gave a copy back to Waz. Uh, uh, live at the homebrew uh, event. And so that's kind of a, and people really value seeing those notes, so we love to 
to, to do that again for notes you already have. Sure. And uh, we're kind of, we have to wrap it up, I've been told by the big cheese. And so we're going to have uh, a great uh, birthday cake cutting here. And we're going to move, and Slom's going to make some notes while I move stuff out of the way and get the cake moved over here. If you want to take pictures of the cake cutting, please maintain a respectful distance a little bit back there. Uh, so we're going to have the cake right here. And then those guys will do the cutting, and then we'll serve cake uh, to, uh, to anybody who wants it. If you really want the sugar high, uh, it's available to you. And with that, uh, from my part of the program uh, is, is over from the cake cutting. And really thank you all for, for being here. And uh, if Waz is feeling well enough, he may sit at the red table there and continue to sign things. If he's not feeling well, it's free to go home at this point. But, uh, anyway, thank you uh, very much. And I'm going to pass it over to Salam. Giveaway of the replica one, so don't go away yet if you're interested in that. Uh, one of the things I do want to mention is it's kind of interesting for me because um, Chris, you've had a hand in this, and this is, this is the Apple II reference manual. And in high school, uh, this was my Bible. I basically walked around with this. This is the actual copy. I tried to find the actual copy, um, but this is basically this was this was um, you know my religion was the Apple II reference manual. I had a very tattered copy that I carried around with me and had a peachy folder cover over it uh, to keep the uh, cover from falling apart. And this is what I basically refer to on a daily basis uh, to unlock the mysteries of the great Apple II. And so in a way, uh, it's interesting because it, um, that the, the whole, uh, uh, you know, I grew up on the Apple II, and it's kind of interesting that these guys sort of have come around in a way in full circle because my passion that led me to do this event was begun by these guys and what they built and, and the passion it instilled in me uh, to basically get into computers and uh, and continue on and, and you know, make a career out of it. So it's definitely exciting for me. Um, so anyway, I have in the, in honor of uh, Waz's uh, um, love of games and things, I've come up with a kind of novel way for. Uh, giving away this uh, replica one, which we're going to do right now. And uh, it's kind of experimental. I hope it works. So let's, uh, let me try the first uh, boot up computer, uh, which is always a, a, a chore. Um, maybe in the meantime, while this is booting up, I can show you some of the stuff that we have up here. Uh, this is the first uh, reference manual. This, this is the so-called red book. And uh, Chris, is, uh, what, what's kind of the history behind this and then that led into the uh, reference manual? Well, the first documentation for the Apple II was a set of uh, programmer's notes that people assembled and that were taken down to um, an instant printer on a regular basis uh, and done in batches of uh, 50 or 100 like that uh, in report covers. And uh, every week there would be a different set of stuff. So you know, if you got a, a, a mini manual, that was what it was called, 
yours was probably unlike any other mini manual you could find because every production run had a different set of content according to what had been written and what had been found. At, at some point, um, Mike Scott got a little disgusted that we didn't have a, a real manual looking like manual, so he took the contents of the mini manual and whatever information he could find. There's a, a complete listing of the ROM in here. Um, there's uh, some things that I typed up on an IBM Selectric typewriter in my bedroom and hand illustrated. There's some things written by Dana Reddington. There's some things written by Woz. There's a bunch of output from a um, that 40 column electrostatic printer uh, in the shiny silver paper that it burned through. You can smell it when it printed. Um, and uh, he had Sherry Livingston type up everything else and took it down to the instant printer, put it all together in an order that that seemed reasonable and uh, pasted with paste page numbers onto the bottom and had it printed up. Um, this is the Apple II reference manual January 1978 and there, uh, there was never really another like this. When I went off to college in, uh, in September of 78, Jeff Raskin gave me a copy of this saying, um, I know you're going off to college, I think you might want a part-time job and have some spending money, so why don't you write a real reference manual? And that was about the degree of instruction he gave me. So I went up to Berkeley, I got an account on Unix A that Apple, Apple paid for, he uh, raised my salary to $5 an hour. And, uh, and that actually paid my way through college, believe it or not. And by the next June, I had produced in on the Unix system uh, in VI using TROF. Apple to the final draft of the Apple II reference manual, except I was the big problem, and this is where I nearly got uh, Andy Hirschfeld kicked out of school. Um, the big problem was that the book wasn't done, but school was, and. I had just finished my finals and needed to pull a couple of all-nighters to do the final proofs, but it took too long to wait for the phototypesetter to print out 200 pages. And he was a grad student, and he had access to the VAX, the 11780 on the fifth floor of Evans, which underclassmen did not have access to. And attached to the VAX was the uh, Versatec 36-inch platen printer plotter, the Waterloo driver for T-Rob, and I was able to do four pages up of proofs fast as uh, the machine could spool them out instead of waiting two days for 200 pages of phototypesetting to come out. And so I was up there uh, previewing and proofing the manuals in the graduate student area, here I was a freshman, um, you know, 11 at night, 12 at night, 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, well you know how that turns into 7 in the morning. And when the graduate student advisors came in and saw this freshman using their 36-inch printer, uh, printer and their uh, precious Vax 11780, which had, what, that had 16K of memory in it, I guess. Uh, they uh, asked questions and uh, nearly got me an Andy kicked out of school. But um, I, I got the manual done, took it down to Apple, and they found it, and that's what's there. So we need to uh, turn on the projector to do my silly okay. giveaway uh, contest here, so we don't want to blind you guys. All right. So uh, this is a puzzle, and the way it's going to work is whoever 
the part of the world, the, the part of the puzzle is to figure out how to figure out the puzzle. If that makes any sense. So basically, the first person uh, who thinks they have the answer, just go ahead and blurt it out, and we will try to identify you uh, orally. And uh, here we go. Okay, here we go. So as soon as you have the answer, blurt it out, and whoever blurts out the correct answer first wins the replica wine, courtesy of Vince Burrell, Real Computers. Okay, here we go. 42. Steve Wozniak. Yeah. There he goes, Steve Wozniak. The answer is Steve Wozniak. What, what this is, this is an anagram of Steve Wozniak. Now Steve Wozniak, whenever you uh, email Woz, uh, he has an anagram of his name uh, as his signature. And so I found this uh, handy thing called, I, well, I always try to come up with a really clever one that maybe Steve hadn't heard of before that maybe he might not admire, but I cheated and used the uh, internet anagram server to come up with these. So I'll just show you the other ones that I came up with are kind of cute. So here's... <laughs> And uh, that, one's pretty, that one I actually came up with on my own uh, a long time ago, but I never had a chance to email Watson and see if he was impressed with it. And then, of course, this is what uh, you get if you ever if uh, Watson uh, responds to your inquiry. So more okay a new size TV. More okay a new size TV, right? So anyway, so that's our silly giveaway, and I'm glad that uh, somebody who will really appreciate it uh, got it can, can summer off. Very good. And, uh, and I guess we'll move the date into the uh, board over here, and uh, we'll do cutting, and we'll ask our, our panel uh, to participate in that and uh, take the first bites. And then um, what do you guys think as far as, uh, you know, we have a big line of uh, folks here who are Look pretty enthusiastic, I guess. Um, and uh, I guess uh, that's it. Everybody's welcome to to uh, enjoy some cake. We'll try to make as many pieces as possible. And uh, I really appreciate everybody coming. This has been a wonderful event, and uh, we still got a lot more to go. It's only three o'clock. We have the good hall open till three o'clock. I'm sorry, till six o'clock. We have the uh, Larry Breed right now is giving a talk on APL history uh, down at the uh, main exhibit hall. And at 3.30, uh, we're going to have to turn this back into the screening room for the Vintage Computer Film Festival. So we're going to actually move the... What, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to move the red table out into the, uh, out into the uh, hallway. So if you guys can snake the line... Uh, as it is, no cutting, please, up to the hallway, and everybody will get an opportunity to get their swag signed. You've been listening to DigiBarn Radio. This story is available for some uses under our Creative Commons license. Please check our website at www.digibarn.com. That's www.digibarn.com for this license and more great stuff from the DigiBarn collections. This is Tommy Cuellar signing off. Thanks for tuning in.